it's a common denominator across every high performer is their ability to be disciplined with focus. And I know the same goes for George Heaton, who I look up to as a, as a builder and the focus of the task you're on. That's the only focus you're going to be focused on. Like if you're working out for two hours in the morning, your entire focus is that two hour workout. If you're designing a clothing or a video for three hours, your entire focus should be that video or clothing design for three hours. Every time you break it up, your creative thoughts are going to go away or they're going to be manipulated. Episode 400, Hunter Weiss, baby. How we doing? Dude, it's so cool to be here. From number four to 400 and watching your journey and seeing what you've done and even being a part of the journey a bit, it's, it's been epic to see. Yeah, you, you've played a huge role from an inspiration standpoint, from a, just looking at somebody who I feel like is doing life the right way. And that part of it is so cool to be on the journey with you. I think, though, a lot of people are finding out about you for the first time in the past 12 months. And they're like, wow, this guy, this guy is doing something with Dan Coe, blowing him up. Then he's doing something with Casey Neistat. Now he's in the background of Ryan Trahan videos. How in the world is Hunter Weiss everywhere? Who is Hunter Weiss? So I kind of wanted to take this uh, time that we have together and really dive into that. How does that sound? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I feel like I was a kid, eight years old, running around with a GoPro, using my family computer, making videos, and just fell in love with the process and the, seeing something. You can create something from nothing and with a camera. And you can really, it's taken me so many places uh, that I, I really couldn't imagine the fact that a camera would get me to New York or introduce me to all these crazy people all just kind of chasing that passion of wanting to make things and put it on the internet. So let's go back to Dan Co and starting with there, okay. because I okay. think a lot of people found out about you for the first time there. Yeah. How did yeah, that it's funny. Be? Uh, I followed Dan on Twitter for years and, um, I constantly like saw his tweets and his Instagram and, was cold DMing him and a few other people, mostly like cold DMing them exact examples of ideas I think that would work well with their current following, current styles. And from there, I think I actually annoyed the shit out of Dan Co until he wanted to work with me. And I had a track record of working with people already uh, in the creator space. And at the time I was working with Casey Neistat, I had moved out to New York to work with Casey. And I wanted to be building something of my own. And we, we went to dinner, uh, me, you, Dylan, Zach, and um, just met some crazy creators. And it was really inspiring to sit at this dinner in West Village that you organized. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that's, uh, that's a completely different way of thinking of like going about social media, uh, the way that you guys, especially Zach and Dylan, were thinking of it. And I started reaching out on Twitter to a few people I thought that I could offer a really good service offer to. And Dan was the best fit. And it became one of those, I know I can do something for you if you take a shot with me. We just need to do it. And from there, we dove in um, in November and made the first video. And 
took a lot of inspiration from Naval. So, and Zach, both were having this new black and white style. Naval had done it really differently, and Dylan was doing Naval's videos. And it was very simple. And I was like, okay, how do we hack this a lot more for the ADHD mind, where you can learn something in a faster pace really quick that could be beneficial to you if you apply it. And that's kind of where I coined this complex ideas simplified, where someone can say something that might feel complex and then you can simplify it with almost like a Jack Butcher visualized value video style. And Jack Butcher really created this black and white minimalist look as a static image, but it was really never adapted as a video format successfully at the time. So being like the first mover to pump this out at volume took Dan Co from 250,000 Instagram followers, I think like 1.3 or 1.4 million in six weeks. And the big six thing weeks. was six weeks. Yeah. The big thing that I tell that? a lot of people, um, between Instagram and TikTok, it was a hundred million organic views in six weeks. One wow. video alone got 40 million views. Uh, I had about 30 hours in a 15 second animation. Wow. Yeah. The big thing with Dan and I tell a lot of creators now that I talk to is if you have tweets that have been viral, that is something that you should turn into a format on short form because it's already been validated to the Twitter world. And I call Twitter the social lottery because when you post something on Twitter, it's either dead or potentially could go viral. That's what happened with the Venice skate park video. Like one piece of content can change your life. But if you take something that's viral words, can you adapt that now to a viral video? And that's what we started doing with Dan. So he was crafting these scripts from a viral thread, making it into a 20 second audio clip. And then we would animate the audio clip to a really engaging storyline, black and white style. And the numbers were insane. We were just getting instant feedback on Instagram and TikTok that it was working. Wow. That, that must've been insane. And I want to break down your mind while that happened. But before we do, I went mad. <laughs> 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 I didn't sleep. I went mad, bro. I literally went mad, I think, from like November to January or February. I think there was like a f- probably like three or four weeks. I slept four hours every night because I was like trying to figure out, okay, how do I maintain this? How do we keep maintaining volume? How can I hire people? How can I bring someone in to like actually keep scaling this while still having great results. And it completely consumed my mind in the worst possible way where I, every waking hour, I only thought about, can we keep going viral? Can we keep getting these numbers? Can we do it for other people? Can it, can, can it compound into 10 different people doing this? Wow. Um, the reason why going back a little bit is I, I brought you guys together to this dinner, you, Dylan Jardin, Zach Pograb, because the reason why I invited you was because I knew you had an incredible mind with video and in, and I'd seen you do this for the past three years, right? I've been following your journey. But the thing is, you moved to New York City because of a, a friendship with Casey Neistat. How did that come to be? And how did you, how did you go from a guy who was just making videos to all of a sudden now, Casey Neistat is your friend, 
and mentor. I mean, like a lot of people would dream of being yeah. in that scenario yeah. themselves. He is my mentor. It's crazy. I, I text him all the time and we're really good friends. Spend a lot of time with him. He's back in the city now, so we'll start running a lot. We've actually already started talking about that. We've got to get ready for New York City Marathon. Uh, the crazy thing, and like going back to the Twitter lottery, is uh, the Venice Skate Park video arguably opened up so many doors and changed the trajectory of my life so quick because of the people that followed me on Twitter after that video went viral. And one of those people was Casey. And I remember he followed me and DM'd me. And I was like, hey, I've been watching your videos forever. I think we should go surfing or go running. I forget what it exactly was. Uh, we should meet up. And we started communicating. And we were both living in LA at the same time. And LA was going through like the worst it's ever been with COVID lockdowns. We were both in Venice Beach. It was madness. There was... Casey's tweet was basically, why are we filling a skate park with sand when there are thousands of homeless people living in tents on the boardwalk that the money and the time and the effort that's going to stop people from going to skateboard could be going to impact people's lives that are struggling in front of a skate park. And it, it went, his tweet also went viral. It, it had huge numbers. And as a creator I've looked up to, I was like, whoa, this is like a huge moment. Like this person's now following me. I can DM them. I can talk to them. And I just reached out and or he reached out. I can't remember. I could probably go back and find it. And then we just started texting and became friends Went surfing. It was actually the first time uh, we met up. I was surfing with him and Cody Co at Venice. And it's like so casual. We we're just out there. And, um, it was, it was a cool moment. And then it kept evolving. So like the pesto company, uh, ultimately didn't work out, but um, he loved the pesto. So did his wife. And one day he gave us a shout out for black market pesto. And uh, I think we had like 200 Instagram followers at the time. It went to six or 700 and had hundreds of orders at the time. It was so illegal. We should never have shipped those, that item. I'm so happy no one got sick. We had this great product, but we couldn't figure out how to scale it and make it. And that kept like furthering our friendship. And uh, I went to his house in Santa Monica, dropped off pesto. Uh, one time I was in LA and he always just was a really cool guy to me and really nice and wanted to help anyway. And, um, there was a time, this was actually one, probably if I looked on my phone one year ago today and he uh, came to my house in San Diego, I was living with my dad at the time to borrow batteries. And, uh, I had woken up at like 10 30 was wearing shorts, walk outside again, batteries, hair's a mess. He's like, bro, what are you doing here? Why are you living in this retirement community neighborhood? What are you like just hanging out? You're not working. You need to get your ass to New York and throw yourself in the fire. And like, you'll, you'll actually, you have too much ambition and skills to be stuck here in San Diego, not pushing 110%. And uh, I was kind of in that moment. I had this like slap in the face realization. This was in front of our friend, Jordan. Jordan's a savage TikTok creator. Jordan stuttered. And I was like, whoa. Uh, Casey just gave me this like reality check that no one has ever given me or no one would ever say. And I was. I felt very stagnant in San Diego. And I wasn't really, I don't think I was living where, living the way I should have, especially as, uh, as productive or focused as I could have been. And after Casey left, I was like, yeah. I'll just text him, see like if I could move to New York and work with him. It'd be kind of cool. And I, I texted him and I got ghosted. 
like really hard. I, I think I got a response two or three weeks later and it's like, Hey, I didn't, uh, wasn't ignoring you. I just have been busy traveling or whatever. And, um, he was like, yeah, how fast can you get out here? And, uh, when, when can you move in? It's like in that moment, I was like, oh, cool. Like I'm definitely about to move to New York, but I responded, uh, I had an elk hunt at the end of September, a bow hunt last year, which I finally, it was a cool moment to get an elk. And I went on the bow hunt and then I came back and I sold everything I owned and I moved to New York, October 6th, got off the plane, didn't have a place to stay through all my stuff in a friend's house. And I went to film with Casey and we made the first video together that we worked on. It was uh, Insta360 New York City uh, it was brand deal video. Did millions of views. It was a crazy moment. Uh, it was our first time working together, yelling at each other, arguing. Like not 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 arguing, but kind of funny how it is. Like sometimes when we work together, we we uh, we get irritated at each other because we want the perfect shot. And if you're not getting a good shot, you reshoot the shot. And Casey's one of those people who would really like to get the shot the first try. And sometimes if it's a technical shot, it could take 45 minutes and a lot of yelling. <laughs> but um, what have you learned from working with him and from being so close to him and spending so much time with him? Yeah, he moves quick. And I believe that one of his biggest strengths is that he moves quick and he's focused and he's very methodical in the way that he produces his videos. It's uh he tries to film every scene in order that he would edit it. So start to finish of a video, you would film scene one in order and then scene two and then scene three. So when you go back to edit, hopefully all your scenes are in order. And ideally, like if you go out and film a video in two to four hours, you get all your shots and then you can come home and edit for a day or two. And then his focus is, okay, if we're out filming, we're out filming and we're only filming and we're focused on filming and we're going from location to location as quick as possible to get each shot. And, and then the editing process is, at the time, it was do not bother me. Go in the other room. Like there was another room. I had my own uh, part in the studio and he would be sitting and editing and I would just have a task to work on. We're not, and it could have been like mopping the floors or it could have been organizing all the camera gear or it could have been cleaning or the biggest thing I did for the most part, he gets so many things shipped to him. I broke down so much cardboard, uh, every single box. There'd be like hundreds of boxes stacked up. Like when I first moved, uh, moved out here and worked with them, when we weren't filming, I organized and like categorized everything that was in boxes because he was gone for three years. So imagine coming back after moving to California, he'd only been back a few weeks and his studio was a mess. And he wanted to re rebuild the whole thing. And you'll notice through the progression of, uh, I believe, like October to now, the studio has completely changed. And I still remember, like, I was going to the hardware store, getting, like, big, big pieces of wood and uh, pushing them on a dolly, like, four blocks up the street uh, when I got out here, like, carrying plywood up the staircase so we could build out the, his new studio because he took over, uh, took down a wall, and now his two spaces combined. And... Uh, the, the focus level of a high performer like that is when focus is disrupted, everything is delayed. Mm. So if you know you can get something done in one day and you know with pure focus it can be done in one day, but then you throw in all these other little distractions, it's going to take two days, maybe three days. And that's something that I've applied to my business is like if I sit down 
and focus even for an hour, two hours straight, no phone, no Twitter, like whatever I need to work on, that can potentially be a full day's worth of work just by eliminating distractions. And that it's a common denominator across every high performer is their ability to be disciplined with focus. And I know the same goes for George Heaton, who I look up to as a, as a builder and the focus of the task you're on. That's the only focus you're going to be focused on. Like if you're working out for two hours in the morning, your entire focus is that two hour workout. If you're designing a clothing or a video for three hours, your entire focus should be that video or clothing design for three hours. Every time you break it up, your creative thoughts are going to go away or they're going to be manipulated. What have you done as somebody who I know is your mind goes in 17 different directions? How have you practically gotten better at that focus, muscle, and and skill? I can run for three hours without headphones in. And that has become one of those things where when I go run at night at sunset, it's because I'm breaking up between what I worked on during the day. I'm going to go run and then I'm going to lock in and focus at night. And I might work from eight to midnight because that time at the end of the day, before I go to bed, after I work out, I find myself to really be able to focus with no distractions. And same with in the morning, if I wake up and run and get my exercise out of the way, I'm not thinking about exercise later and then I can tap into focus. And it really, like one thing is I have become very organized with all the projects and tasks I'm working on in a CRM. So I can visualize and see everything that needs to be done with a start date and when it needs to be finished and it's mapped out. So I can then allocate, okay, this project's going to take eight hours. This project's going to take 20 hours and put that time into making sure that I'm blocking off the time I need to focus on those projects. And I mean, I love do not disturb. That's one of the greatest because the notifications is the, I think one of the worst um, mental distractions, that sound effect, the buzz. And also just kind of uh, being a bit like knowing most people I work with are, they don't work on the weekends, client client side and my team. So it's like Monday through Friday really being tapped in is if I'm organized on every Sunday, which I try and organize my entire week on Sunday, then I know exactly when I wake up today, Monday morning, what needs to be done the entire week, except for the new meetings that will come in that week. And those are the biggest, I would say, almost distraction from focusing on work is you still have to do sales and run the business side. And to take a 30 minute or hour Zoom, it really has to be worth it now because that is going to disrupt time that could be working for existing clients or on existing videos or projects that are open. Okay, so you're talking about the business and... It's funny because you come into New York City and you're working for Casey and it wasn't a, a plan like it, the plan was moving here like you're working for Casey. So then how, how does the business start and at what point do you realize, oh, wow, I, I don't want to be working just for Casey forever? Um, probably like the first week. <laughs> like I wanted to just be friends with Casey, not an employee. I don't really want to work. I don't. Since I've left working for the NFL, I haven't worked for anyone and I've understood the freelancing game, but I didn't understand at the time the best avenue to take with it 
or where I could excel at it. And working with Casey is great. He, you can learn a lot from him. He makes incredible videos. He is, I would argue like he created and is like the face of vlogging and one of the innovators and pioneers of YouTube. And don't get me wrong. I loved running around and being outside and filming, but I didn't love being in the office, breaking down boxes and mopping and doing these things that my time personally and what I would rather do, I would value four or five hours in my day working on my own business than doing janitorial tasks. And I still did it because I was had the opportunity to work line, alongside him and learn from him. But every single day I went home, I was like, I'm, I need to build something in New York, like what I was doing when I was in LA. I had a bunch of freelance work and it was because I was just consistently pushing to pushing people to work with them, like constantly reaching out and asking, but bringing them something that was catered to them. And I think like now it, I still for fun, go work with Casey. I, I don't, but he says, Hey, you want to make a video? Yeah, we'll go make a video. Like we had, uh, sometimes now like personality in the videos, sometimes filming. We, um, done some cool videos. The chat GPT video was the first uh, project that we, I filmed, filmed it with him. And then my team came in and um, we designed and did all the chat GPT animation. So he finished editing then he handed us the product file and then let us go full creative freedom to create this chat GPT box. And that's like been, I think one of the coolest videos we've done because it was literally asking chat GPT, write a Casey Neistat script and then clicked print and then took that and then went and filmed every single thing that it said on that script to bring it to life. I mean, this is the craziest thing. You went from moving to New York City to work for somebody to then working with them in a business capacity within a year. I mean, like that's a pretty crazy thing. It's like not only was Casey a mentor, he was also now somebody who you're working with as a, a business partner in some way. And that's like, yeah, that's everyone's dream. I feel like, dude, he, I, whenever I was like going, when the business was blowing up, I was winning his, cause we're, this is his old studio. This is the beam studio and he's five feet away. Like I can go knock on his door in 10 seconds. So whenever I was like getting these big companies and deals coming through, I'd go over there and be like, Casey, how do I respond to this? Like, how would you formulate a response for this brand or company they're asking for videos. What would you quote or what would, how would you respond? And then sit there. He would just tell me all these things. I would try and remember it all. And I'm like, okay, I only remember half of it. Cause there's so much information. Try and simplify what he said and then run back to my studio and type an email, read it a few times and click send and then wait for a response and screenshot the response and send it to Casey. So it became this like really great mentorship. And I like, to this day, I want to help him with anything that he needs help on and would love to continue building and whatever, wherever our paths continue to cross. Um, I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to be around him and work with him and just to be able to ask him questions. And he's a savage athlete. And we both know that when we run together, we push each other because we don't talk. It's like no talking. Running's our Zen. Running's our let's push our bodies and see how hard we could run 15 miles. It's like one day we ran 20 something miles together casually and then had a steak dinner. And I'm just like, uh, that was a good day. Was, <laughs> that was a hard day, but it was, it was fun. And it's, uh, it's cool. Uh, it's really cool to 
have a creator that uh, is willing to, I think, help like the next generation. And yeah. he just being around him, he helps a lot of people. And he's a really good dude. What's interesting is that the way that some people look at Casey is in some sense the way people who are following your journey look at you in that there are people out there, young creators, young entrepreneurs who are like, you know what? Hunter Weiss is really doing it right. And in one sense, I really think there's the entrepreneurial athlete is like a trend that I see coming up. And if I were to rename this podcast, one of the potential names would be like the entrepreneurial athlete. Because I think that trend is just going through. You see some of the most, the highest performing episodes of this podcast are episodes in which the person is also an athlete running their own business. What have you noticed about this trend, first of all? And also, like, how have you instilled that in your own being? Interesting. Yeah, I think there's um, a human desire to push athletic feats the same way as there is a human desire to push business as hard as you can or as big as you can. Because if you want to build something that is going to impact more than yourself, you're going to have to sacrifice a lot of things. And what the athletic world teaches you is a lot about sacrifice and discipline. And those go hand in hand with business, especially and I, I study a lot of Kobe and Tim Grover and the best are almost by others viewed not mentally sane because of the way they train. So the same with business and sports and there's that saying the second half of a marathon is like building a business when you want to quit. That's where you actually have to keep going. Because business can feel sometimes really easy and then you hit this extremely hard point. And running a marathon can feel extremely easy and then mile 16 or 20 comes around and you're dead. You don't want to go anymore. And that second half is then where you really tap into the mindset aspect. And that's where I believe with entrepreneurs and athletes is it all comes down to mindset. And when you have an extremely high high and you're riding off a dopamine from closing a massive deal... It would be no different than if you won a massive race or you're Tom Brady, you win the Super Bowl and you're on this extreme high, but the second that's over, you're now chasing that next win. And the only way you get to that next win is really going back down to rise back up because you're gonna, your dopamine is going to like go away and you're going to be left with this, okay, I won, but now if I want to win again or pursue further excellence, I'm going to have to go through that process again, plus learn something and apply it to go even higher. And that's where it's like, you're going back to practice. You're always, every single day, you're waking up and going to practice. And I think that's like one of the greatest things about sports when you're younger is you're learning the discipline of going to practice to get better, to hopefully win right. No one plays. I would think like most people that play competitive sports are playing to win. No one wants to lose. No one wants to work out all day and then half the team doesn't want to work out. So you're losing because your teammates don't want to work out. Like the teams that work together because they all want to win, they're all in that mindset. And that's the same thing with businesses. It's like that was what I got back from when we went with Andy Frisella is 
he has built an environment that he wants everyone to feel like they're winning and give them the opportunity to train in there, to, to do these events, to have team building events, to sell the best products because he wants to win and he wants to carry his entire team with him to victory. And I believe that's the same type of mindset that you see in sports that also is in the best businesses. And I believe that's the same with George Heaton. The way that he has built himself is then reflected with like the people around him are looking up to him as, oh, look at how hard Heaton is working. He's up at 4.30 every morning. And it sets a, and same with Frisella. And it sets this new baseline of what it takes to be in that, in, in that environment. How you treat your body is showing the world how much respect you have for yourself. And if you look at somebody who is in good shape, your initial judgment of that person is, oh, they respect themselves. And oh, if they respect themselves, they'll probably respect me if I'm putting in work. And that gives people such an important look at somebody's mental state. Your your body is showing someone else how you view your own mental state in a split second. And it's really cool. You bring up Frisella, and I'm curious what you thought of one, going to the, that facility and two, getting the chance to meet somebody who had impacted you in, in some way. Yeah, I think one of the funniest things that still sticks out, and this goes back to him wanting to win, is how he said Amazon's building a fulfillment center next to us. So we bought the land in front of Amazon's building so we can build a higher building so that you don't see the Amazon fulfillment center. You see first form from the freeway. And that's his whole like, yeah, he's not anywhere near as big as Jeff Bezos and Amazon, but it's the mindset of just one little edge for that area. And that changes his whole perspective of that's a little win while expanding and building his company bigger. And what I really liked about Frisella and going there is and seeing it is I compared to when you think of a big company, a bunch of cubicles, he designed an office that was all almost you could see all the way through it from the ground floor and in a way where you can connect with everyone. And it felt like he built this company culture where if I was a video editor and I need to go talk to a graphic designer, I just get up and walk over and sit next to the graphic designer. If I'm in sales and I need to talk to someone on the affiliate side, I can get up and go walk to the affiliate side and the entire space felt very collaborative. And I'm starting to see it in just from analyzing some of the greatest companies, the more collaborative they are, it seems that you have a better company culture and creating where there's no barriers, where everyone's equal within the office. Everyone can just kind of walk around and talk to anyone that makes sense. Does that make like, and when I was there, obviously, uh, Frisella and the, the, there was people who had their massive offices, but the big thing is they all had clear glass. Everyone could see in, Right. There's no secure, there's no privacy in a way, but you can see the, what the VP of sales is doing while you're sitting 20 feet away. And it, it, it felt really authentic and it felt trustworthy and it felt like what he's building. You have this massive gym and while we're doing the podcast or you're doing it and there's people working out below all day. And he's made this environment where the athletes can just come in, work out and film. And he basically created a content factory at the office 
which all intertwines into building the business stronger. And if you're a first form athlete, you can show up and use the facility, which I mean, we got to use it as well. And that what would you say that was one of the best gyms you've ever been in your life? Definitely. Yeah, I mean, you you brought up two great points that I really hadn't even thought about, which was about the Amazon building and making the first form building one inch taller and the collaborative nature of it. And then another part that I just thought about was how he didn't let the employees use the office for the first or use the gym for the first 60 days of them being employees because they had to earn their stripes. And I just what was so cool to me about that experience and sharing it with you was I could see how much of his ethos was in that office and in that building. And it was like, it's, it's one thing to listen to somebody, right? For so many hours and hours and hours. It's another thing to be in their presence and then see other people live in those values. That to me was the coolest part of like, this isn't just talk. This is like real life that people are living. And it's always cool when your quote unquote heroes not only live up to the expectations you have of them in your head, but they exceed them. And that was the case for me with Frisella. And it seems like that was the case for you as well as with Casey too, which is something I think a lot of people don't realize or think about. It's like, what if your heroes were actually better than you expected, right? Well, do you remember when we walked into the shipping facility? Yeah, that was massive. It was okay. so and big. Do you remember what Frisella said? There's a line of... They all look pretty young, maybe like 16 to 25-year-old dudes or people. I don't remember if there were any girls or not. Packing boxes, and it was, it was really systematized, but he said every single box gets a handwritten note. Mm-hmm. And there was people there. If you pack a box, you do a handwritten note. So every employee in that facility would write a note on a first-form card, and this is a however multi-million dollar company that's still spending the time to handwrite a thank you for buying our product in every single box they ship out. And that was one of those things where I know companies that do that on a smaller scale, but for a company that big to allocate time, that could spend way more time packing more boxes. They allocate, call it three to five minutes extra per box to say thank you. And that's like one of those going above and beyond where he could have stopped doing that years ago, but they probably kept doing it because they see the brand value and loyalty and respect that people probably take a photo of it, share it on Instagram story with the product. And it's like, oh, I got a handwritten note. What a great company. And it all goes back to that ethos we were talking about, like all the way through from front office to warehouse. There's this uh, uh, mentality of greatness and wanting to it's it's uh, huge levels of respect. Yeah. You mentioned the collaborative nature of the office. And you're sitting in the office right now, where which you share with Dylan and, and Zach. And it's crazy that that one dinner led to that office. And it's a collaborative office as well. There's You could kind of see it in the background for those watching on YouTube. Uh, how has that experience, getting an office in the city... You, you're going from working for Casey... In October to now having your own office with a couple yeah. of friends. What's that like? 
it's funny because I came to Casey and I was like, hey, dude, do you think there's any ability to get a small studio in this building? And he connected me to property manager. And we looked at some of the worst studios, no windows, super small. And then the day we were going to sign a different studio, they're like, hey, this, uh, the old Beam Studios um, open. You want to check it out? I walk in and I was like, yeah, we'll take it. I'll figure out how to pay for it or get people that will. And at the time, um, Dylan and Zach, we were trying to see if we could get something together. I didn't know if it was going to work out or not. I was pretty open to paying um, like around $2,000 for a space. And there was one in here for $2,000. And then we ended up signing this place the day after. I saw it and I was like, we're getting it. I told them, you guys got to come see it, but I'm ready to sign it. And they both saw it. We signed it for, I'd say, a pretty good price for New York City office. And the collaborative nature of being around three entrepreneurs that have their own thing going, but are all driven to create and want to want to work hard changes the way you work. So we're not we're some days working together, some days going to lunch, but often we're just sitting here working on our own thing. And then we're just talking, we have an idea, we validate it or we invalidate it by talking to each other. Um, Dylan's building smart nonsense email list. Zach has been absolutely crushing building his personal brand and figuring out what's next. And all day I'll ask Zach ideas. He'll ask me ideas. I mean, before we're on this call, we've been talking all two and a half hours today about an idea that, we're trying to valid. We're, we're both validating. Like, is it a good idea? Is it something that's worth pursuing? And it's by putting um, other people around you that are trying to build something or have already built something, and being able to ask them what they think, and sharing your best ideas for criticism, feedback. I don't think you're, we're worried about anyone stealing it. If anything, we're like, okay, is this idea good enough to build together? Is this idea? And that's the collaborative nature where. It, I prefer being in my office than I do in my house because I know I can come to this place and even if I don't want to work and I want to just sit in here and listen to a podcast or make a video or take a nap. Like I've spent nights in here, but just because it's easier to just fall asleep here than go home. It's, um, I think it's been one of the best changes of my life to not be working where I sleep for like waking up and leaving come take taking a shower waking up taking a shower and out of the house in 10 minutes and it it gets you into a completely different mental state when you separate where you live and where you work and I think that's what a lot of people are realizing with this whole work from home thing some people probably love it and some people probably hate it and I think the hating it part is probably linked to the lack of still being social and being able to talk and interact with real people and not just being on a zoom call for eight hours a day. Yeah. So I'm sure the 23 year old version of Hunter is listening to this and let's say he wants to build his own business or is in the process of building his own business right now. What would you recommend for that kid to start having an office space or start building with other people? If he is by his own very nature, a lone wolf type character and like wants to get after it on his own. Um, the first thing is making money from a skill set because then 
you have a case study, but also you might have to do that for free to get a case study or to prove yourself. And once you, it's a good question. So I would say the biggest thing is figuring out how to build a team and when do you, when can you start outsourcing? When I was freelancing in LA, I would often film something and then hand it to someone else to edit because the time to edit took way longer and then I could film more things. And you have to figure out when are you willing to give up doing something that you can do something else better. And then you have trade-offs. Now you have leverage because now you know what your skill sets are that you're good with. And I think that you should lean way more into strength, strengths and outsource weaknesses. And that's because the best entrepreneurs figure out when to delegate and where their time is best allocated. And I see that consistently across the board that the best entrepreneurs have the best teams. And I don't even think an office is necessary unless you fully want a space to sit and work in all day. Like if you can sit in a coffee shop and get the same thing done, going bouncing around, do what works. What has worked for me might not work for someone else. I just find that if you have to decide, like is spending the money to get an office or spending the money to hire someone going to make sense to further progress where you want to go? And you have to kind of know where you want to go. You have to have an aim. You have to kind of have an idea of what, where are you trying to take what you enjoy doing? And you have to kind of enjoy doing something. And if you don't know what you want to do, then I think the best thing is to try Try a hundred things till something is like, wow, I got to keep doing it. Um, and that's the, that's the toughest part is creating something and watching it fail and knowing you have to move on and knowing when to quit to move on because it's not going to work. And that's the entrepreneurial journey for often for a lot of people. And go ahead. You're going to, what was your I, biggest failure? No, what was your biggest failure that you're, you look back on and you're like, wow, I'm so grateful that that happened because it led to something that I couldn't have imagined. Um, uh, two things, the, the pesto bummed me out because it was a really good product and we sold 5,000 units handmade. Like we made it out of a kitchen in San Diego, my roommate at the time, everyone loved it. We could post on our Instagram story. We had 300 jars and sell it in 24 hours is healthy. It felt like it was impacting people because they loved it. It was a healthy product. They could have it on all their meals and it was validated. But to scale a consumer, a consumer packaged good that realistically needs to be refrigerated, it, it's not, it wasn't realistic at the time. And I think one day I hope to revive it and bring it back to, bring it back to the world because it's, there's nothing, there was nothing of quality standard out there. And then the other, so um, I had a 10-month contract with the NFL and I was freelancing while working with the NFL. NFL doesn't pay that much. It, they know that it's a clout job. So like if you're an editor, great. Like you come in, someone else will come in. Like they're constantly turning over. And it's really tough to be an hourly employee as an editing machine when you could go sell one project in LA for one day's worth of work, what you made in a week at the NFL. And once you do that, you're kind of opened up to that world of 
freelancing is hard because it's not consistent paycheck, but you will make way more money if you go and freelance successfully and you're hustling. And my contract with the NFL ended and I had some freelance clients, but seven days later after it ended was when I filmed the Venice video and it went mega viral. So it was like one door closed and then like the next wave of doors opened. So it was like, I was bumped. It was weird. Cause I didn't really enjoy working for the NFL after a certain point like this. It was really mentally exhausting to be a video editing machine. And it, it taught me a lot. It really opened a ton of doors, but what it's weird. Like when you leave a job and then you're kind of thinking, well, I just left the NFL how do I like live up to what's next or what do I do that will keep me uh, progressing further? And then like the world just opened in another door. It's crazy. Cause you could have never predicted that door and no, you that, can't. And that's just, yeah. Well, the that's social why I about trusting, trusting the process and, and understanding that's all unfolding perfectly. If you have faith, because there is no world in which you could have imagined you filming a video, it gets retweeted by Trump. It like it it goes crazy to the point where it opens every door known to man. It does a hundred million views on its own, if if not more. And it's like, good luck predicting that. So yeah, yeah, it's a crazy feeling waking up seven days straight and you have CNN, Fox, Barstool, like endlessly every day. You have a new person asking for licensing every single day. For seven days, it was just my email. I'd never seen, I could just kept refreshing email notifications, DMs. And it was like the next one, next one, next one. It just kept, can we use this? Can we put it on TV? Can we put it in Japan? Then you have the people from all over the world who start DMing you. Hey, I just saw your video in New Zealand. I just saw it in Australia. I saw it in Canada. I just saw it in Japan. I just saw it in, and you're just getting like, this is blah, blah, blah from Barcelona. And you're just getting spammed. It's the coolest feeling to hit that virality. But then dude, you are, it is the worst feeling for your brain. You are riding a high. And when the high dies, you are going to be depressed. Yeah. Like you're going to be messed up. Like the fact that you could only sleep four hours a night for a week because you're so dopamined out that you can't fall to sleep. And once you do fall asleep, you're right back up because there's, there's work to do. And then you check your phone right when you wake up and you have 50 emails, millions of notifications, and you're, the dope means right back up. I mean, and it's not like you've just done this once. You did this with Dan Co, and you continue to do it and go viral on your own. And you've said before in a previous podcast, what goes viral is often toxic. You can manufacture negative virality. It's way harder to manufacture positive virality, which I'd argue you've done. In many different ways, you could say the the Venice skate park video is positive virality for putting more <laughs> putting more depends on the yeah um, depends attention on, who you are. on something <laughs> that needs to be seen. But you, regardless, you've done it in a in a positive sense for Dan Co and many others. And so the question becomes: Then, what do you know about virality that most people don't? It's psychological. And uh, what goes viral negative is usually uh, increasing cortisol, fear-related, um, makes people angry, or triggers. You're either triggering negative emotions or positive emotions. And the whole positive virality thing that I've noticed with social media is 
it's usually relates to something that can be motivating or impactful for people to make a change or apply that will benefit their life versus negative virality is the things that you consume that will almost always never give you any sort of impact other than potentially making you fearful, angry, or uncomfortable or shameful. And we see this with what's on TikTok and Instagram consistently going viral. That's negative. I'm sure you could open up and find something negative in a few swipes. And if you get drawn in, then you're going to be fed more of it. And this is where like, if you can train yourself in the algorithm and you can, and you're watching positive things, your algorithm's going to be positive. But once you start diving into the negative, it knows you like that and it's going to learn your behavior and it's going to start feeding you more negative content. And I believe because of the last maybe like three to five years, we've seen this more negative virality warfare on our minds that when people see something positive, that that leaves them, whoa, what I just watch, what I just hear, what that made me feel something. It felt like good. I need to share this with someone. I need to share this with my friends. I need to share this in a group chat. And it's, I would like to think that more people are creating positive content in the world, but we're seeing way more negative because the algorithms fuel more engagement, more anger, more comments, more shares off the negative. And that's something that I'm really not liking with Twitter right now is that I mute these pages, but they're constantly pushing almost like gruesome, brutal videos of people like maybe getting attacked or, and if you mute it, you won't see one for a while, but then like one will funnel in, but it'll have, if you look at the numbers, it'll have like 20 million views. Yeah. It's interesting though. I heard you talk about this on Ty's podcast, but if you go, I've got to show you my Twitter feed because there's absolutely no fights. There's no, nothing wrong. Like with the world, it's, it's a happy thing. I watch UFC and I, I'm convinced I watch all the UFC clips and I'm convinced that if you watch UFC clips, they give you street fights. Nah, I, I watch UFC clips too. I don't know. <laughs> I, I definitely, uh, but like for the most part, yeah, it's, it's got, it's, it just depends. It depends on the day, but on Instagram, yeah. the big thing that I'm seeing there is that can something that's already going viral as positive be repurposed into an animated format and go more viral and it's worked. So curating viral audio and then adding imagery to the viral audio that tells a story for what you're listening to or the, the whole thing with the, the positive virality is I think that there definitely are people that want it. Cause you read the comments and there's huge chain, huge chains of positive comments hmm. and engagement from other people. And the algorithms work off of the time spent watching the video shares comments. So if you create something that people agree with or like, there's going to be a ton of comments if it starts to get eyes on it. And you'll notice too, even in the positive videos, people will then come in and start being very negative. And then people will fight back the negativity and create even more comments that are positive. So Hmm. someone will say something negative and then there will be a team of people teaming up that they're wrong. And then you're creating the positive video ends up creating accidental controversy. 
and you're witnessing this all go down, like you must be looking at the comments nonstop. Not anymore. You used to. I'll I'll post a video and then like check back a week later and look through. Like I'll see what the top comments are because then you get an idea. Oh, okay, this comment has a thousand likes. What do they say? Um, it's there's I think like now after being in this game so long, there's unless you're using it for feedback to get feedback, like the comments are like the biggest waste of time. Mm. They just make and post. The comments are other people's for other people, I guess, to enjoy for, for consumers. It's almost like the comments are for consumers. When it gets to a certain I, like, as point, a creator. it becomes unmanageable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like if you think about Casey, like Casey could get 3,000 comments on a video. If you read through them, there's so many positive comments, but there's some like there could be some really mean negative comments. The second you start reading the negative comments and start diving into more, it's going to impact your brain. So it's like you could be a great creator and then you could let one comment get to your head and then it might change your creative process or what you do forever. And I think that's where Mr. Beast could go read comments and there's probably a lot of negative comments and positive comments, but there's something in human nature where negativity impacts you more and hurts you Mm -hmm. more, obviously. And I think that's like what scares a lot of people from creating in the first place or putting their art into the world or putting what they do well into the world is they're worried about the potential negative feedback from people they know or don't know and what it could do to them personally. So you've gone viral so many times on your own for other people. Have you ever, did, did it ever cross your mind to say to yourself, why am I doing this for Danco? Why am I doing this for other creators? Why am I doing this for other businesses? Why don't I just do this for myself? Yeah, often. Um, because, and this is, there's two, two, there's two parts to this. I like the idea of being able to potentially network and work with anyone through showcasing great results. And, by working with other people, I'd say every month I open multiple new doors and these people extend opportunities that could in itself put me in like a position where I'm like, and I look up to Cole Bennett as a director and now I'm called in to write and direct a project or commercial or it's, I'm still creating it, but I'm creating it from a different lens and Right now, the, if I were to be doing my favorite type of creation and there's zero money in it, it would be chasing big wave surfing. And it's not really a niche that you make money in and can, I would say, like, it's not going to make you wealthy. But that's the trade off is like, do you chase? pure creation or can you do both? Can you still create how you want to create, do projects on the side and focus on building a business that is cash flow positive? And right now, the stage of life I'm in, I want to build a cash flow positive business so that later I have the opportunity to do anything I want, produce anything I want, direct anything I want around likely like where I, I have the most interest is action sport documentaries. Mm-hmm. and creating long form of 
elite athletes in action sports and bringing their stories into who knows, maybe it's Netflix, maybe it's YouTube, maybe it's one of these big streaming companies, but the opportunity to really like craft these projects that you can't make in a day or a week. Like they take months, they take a year. You're traveling, you're going on a strike mission to Portugal to film Nazare. You're going to Europe to film a MotoGP race. And I feel like every single day of the way I'm building right now, I get closer to working alongside some of the world's greatest, the greatest athletes and creators. And nowadays, all these athletes are creators. And they're all looking for, they're all looking for different ways to stand out and build social value because the brands will pay them more money. And the other thing too, the brands will pay to produce all this stuff. The brands will sponsor a video and be the title sponsor. I mean, Red Bull spends billions of dollars every year strictly to give their athletes a better platform to sell Red Bull, but they're a media company. And I, I view what I'm doing right now just as more stepping stones to what I'll do later. But what I'm doing right now is working extremely well. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because it's almost like a journey back to yourself. Like when you were 15 years old, you have a motocross YouTube channel. And it's like you doing big wave surfing and documenting that is almost like you doing the motocross videos back when you were a teenager. And I find that interesting, like the journey back to ourselves. Um, yeah, it's funny. Why, why, why do you think you're so enthralled with action sports and also like the need to document it? Where does that come from? Well, I think that extreme, like the extreme action sports athletes are some of the craziest athletes in the world that don't necessarily get the attention of mainstream athletes. So the world's greatest big wave surfers will never make the money that a pro soccer player will make. They'll never get the eyes, but they realistically could die every single day they go out there and they still go out there sometimes until they're 50 for 30 years, they've surfed big waves or pro dirt bikers who are doing double backflips die at 23 or they make it to 50 or they like these these athletes are on the edge of life and death every single time they do their sport. And there is, I think it goes back to this. Uh, it, what they do ultimately creates, can create, create fear in a viewer, viewer. And there's a viral aspect of watching someone do death-defying stunts that makes the public want to watch it. And ultimately like these, the reason these sports aren't as big is because they just don't have enough people that watch it. They don't have, if 5 million people watch surfing, how many hundreds of millions of people watch soccer or the NFL? And it's completely the money, the money goes where the views are. We've learned that if anything, um, look at Rogan. I mean, if you get the views and listens, like look at Messi billion dollars of brand value added since he moved to Miami or whatever. So there's a, a clear distinction in today's day and age that the money falls the views and for good and bad. We see that often. 
And the whole thing for me with action sports is I grew up racing dirt bikes and mountain bikes and was in that world. And now I, kids I grew up with are some of the biggest in, in their respective talents and what they've followed every single day since they were a little kid. And they just pushed, they pushed their limits every single day to get to a level that no one else could do what they could do. And there's something really interesting in telling that story and what makes those people tick. What draws someone to want to jump 150 feet on a motorcycle? And they've created these smaller cult followings, but they have, some of these guys have a million fans, but those are a million true fans because that person has been, they've been following that guy for eight years. And they might be smaller than these broader athletes, but a million people in the sport, if you mention that person's name, they know exactly who he is and what he's known for. And you're basically then creating for a very tight niche that has an audience that cares about them. I've said before that, or I believe that the sport that we like the most is often just the sport that we were the best at when we were done playing it. So like you'll see people love football because they were a great high school football athlete or a college football player. Um, And so I think that's probably similar to you where you love these crazy action sports because that's where you excelled from a young age. And I was never that good at surfing, unfortunately. (laughs) So, but but different, but yeah. 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 You always miss it. You always question what could you have done, but then you're like, no. I was never the guy who's doing a 120-foot backflip. That had no interest to me. Yeah. But I loved watching the people that could do it. Yeah, man. It feels like to me like you're going to be a part of that wave of literally propelling action sports into the mainstream conversation in a way over the next 30 to 50 years. Like To me, that seems like a foregone conclusion. Does that also resonate with you? Yeah, and then there's some days where I'm like, damn, I'm just going to shut this all down one day and uh, ride a motorcycle across continents or the country and just document it all and just have fun creating. There's like so many different ideas and like they can all fuel together. So to find, for example, any, any motorcycle company that wants to sponsor 60 days of endless content around a bike and then just review and destroy basically turn it into how far can this bike take me till it doesn't work as a product review and just push a bike's limit from, I don't know. I've, I've thought of buying a bike out here and riding from New York to San Diego just to see how, how long it would take, how possible is it and document it. Cause there's people that will watch it. Uh, but I'm really in build mode right now. Like I have actual responsibility every single day that I feel a hundred percent obligated to, and it would not be fair to people that are relying in results that have paid me. And that's the entrepreneur side, the creator entrepreneur, and then like the athlete side keeps me sane. And it's like there's the mix of like pushing running is, okay, I know I have to work hard today. I'm going to go run hard today. And it's the complete balance of I can't sit in this office for 10 hours straight. But if I go run for an hour, sure, 
I can sit in here for eight hours. I got that, that, uh, mental medicine from running. (laughs) Take me through the, the highs and lows. You know, we've mentioned it a few times now, but it seems like from being friends with you and witness, witness, witnessing exactly what you're going through that it's just like some days you're on top of the world. Other days you're like, what the hell am I doing? I just want to sell everything and rent a bike and go to San Diego. Like, how do you deal with the highs and lows? Um, part of that, I believe, is when things get really tough with the business, there's that mental side of just quit, just give up. Why are you doing this? Go do something else. But I also know that if you focus long enough on the same thing, then you keep seeing progress. And that's the number one thing that I've seen the most success with is related to anything related to video. So mm-hmm. in the back of my mind, it's like if I quit one thing in video, then I'll do something else with video. But I think right now it comes down to I could have a client and work with them for three months and then they decide, okay, we don't want to work together anymore. And then I'm like, okay, I lost a client. I should go get a new client. And then I'm back in that like seeking of um, to keep the business maintaining revenue. And I want to scale it. So if you're losing clients and then gaining a new one, what are you doing wrong? And then you have to analyze what went wrong, figure out what went wrong, try not to do it again. And then you have competition in business and competition can come and potentially take your clients by just offering something different or having um, cheaper prices. And then there's the aspect of actual peer, like getting rejected in business by thinking you have something lined up, you're good, you're good, you're good, and then you're not. And I notice um, you're constantly have to be selling and you're constantly going to be getting rejected and you're constantly going to think that you had a close that won't close but you're still always chasing. Like I have overhead. I have expenses. New York's not cheap. So it's that mental hustle of, okay, um, if you don't work, you don't eat, or you don't re- pay rent, or you don't have pay, can't pay your team, or you're eating into profitability, that then makes you, okay, in the back of my mind, do I want to sit here for eight hours and do Zoom meetings? Not really, but I know it's beneficial. I know it has to be done. And the highs and lows too, I, I think it, there's some weeks the virality will, uh, if you're spending too, the, the big thing is the screen time. I think a lot of people's uh, mental health, they don't realize how affected it is by screen time because we're so used to now using a screen laptop or phone for so many hours a day. And then you're not realizing how much you're just depleting yourself and how much mm-hmm. that affects your brain's natural dopamine, serotonin, circadian rhythm, waking up, first thing you do is look at a phone or going to bed, staring at a phone. And we're kind of, both of us are kind of in the business that requires the use of social media, requires the use of constantly being on screens or editing or using, um, even just like having to respond to messages and DMs and answering questions. And there's, probably an unhealthy amount of time that we both put in, but it's necessary for the time and where we are right now. And I'm sure you probably have crazy highs and lows, but 
Like, do yeah. you, do you feel the same way? Yeah, dude. It, it's, it's exactly the same. Um, you know, one thing I started doing since doing the retreat, which people can listen to that episode, um, is just, I'm, I'm going to take Saturdays and not use the phone or laptop and just take that as like, all right, all off. Like if I can't take one day off of the material of being sucked into this machine, I'm doing something wrong. So that's going to be one change that I've made from the retreat. And it, it feels way different, like just having that time off and maybe not it. Maybe it's not for everyone who's in build mode, but like there are mornings you could take off there are evenings, you know, like you could put time to it if just to get back to baseline. But it's just crazy, like the highs and the lows of it and the sucked in and you have something that works and then you have something that doesn't and then you're and you don't realize you're you're extrapolating and like putting together those two things in that moment of like it working or not being you. So, yeah, man. that's the problem with the gym and like going versus like running is like if I'm sitting inside all day for eight hours or 10 hours or even five hours and didn't get outside today. I'm going to go to the gym, listen to music, be around more people stuck inside, or I can leave my phone at home, put on my Garmin and track my run. And I can go run for an hour and completely disconnect. And that one hour, I feel like a completely new person. Yeah. And that's why if I have a day where I spend a lot of time inside and have a lot of screen time, I'm trying to go run at sunset to get that final bit of light, see the sunset and get a run completely detached. And it completely changes my brain before I go home, eat dinner, and go to sleep. Or if I'm going to work again, for, then it separates. I have like a bit of sanity in being outside. Yeah. I mean, I have you to thank for turning me on to running to the degree to which I've done it. I told you I was going to run a marathon a couple of years ago. Never did it. Then told you I was going to run a marathon this year when we were going to Frisella. And I'm training for my first one. And that... I've never really been in the routine of running five times a week and consistently putting in more mileage and consistently getting that feeling of getting something done, physical, overcoming the the endorphins going every day. It's made a huge difference. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like you're about to enter into your biggest training block that you've ever done, the most intense one, according to you, for the New York City Marathon in I think eight weeks, 10 weeks, something like that. What's that experience going to be like? And Not overall, <laughs> what, what, what's running like for you? Um, yeah, the, the marathon blocks are not fun just from doing. I mean, I'll probably run like try and have multiple 20 mile runs on Saturday mornings. That's the big day. Saturday is the big end of the week so you train hard you build up to saturday and then you do anywhere from 16 to 22 mile runs every saturday for eight weeks and that just gets you to that it revives the endurance which i already have but it puts you back in that mentality of okay ran 16 this weekend next weekend 20 the following weekend 22 and then when the marathon comes around you've already clocked so many close to a marathon that the marathon mentally is easy and now you're like okay how hard can i push myself 
where is my training base? You know exactly where you've trained to, the times you're running, where your heart rate is. It's almost mathematical, hopefully, that when you go to the marathon, you can pace what you want to run. And it's a you, you, you see it right now, running five days a week. The consistency factor, you can measure your results getting better at running week by week. And you also hit a point, too, where you recognize that you start to feel better the days you run than the days you don't run. And then when you have to recover, you're like, should I go run today or should I take it off? Like I know going and running four miles right now would feel great, but I've already ran 40 miles this week. And then you're in that, you're now you're in a dis- discipline for recovery and people don't realize how important that is that the best athletes are as disciplined training as they are in recovery. And that's where you're really playing this. Okay. I'm not running today because I'm doing an entire full body workout core and swimming for 30 minutes to have low impact day. But cause tomorrow I'm running 18 miles and yeah, I have, uh, I ran a marathon last year on my birthday. I told Casey I'm going to run one. He's like, you better do it. So I ran it on my birthday. Uh, that was number 16, but this year will be number 17, um, in November. And I don't know. Last year I chased New York City filming Casey's uh, New York City vlog. And we did a really cool video out of that. Crowdsourced hundreds of clips, uh, which was a really fun process to do. Went through Twitter and just pulled every, downloaded every video we could. But yeah, I think uh, the big thing is I believe every person, if they actually went outside, they could go run slash walk 26 miles right now. And they actually just don't want to they don't have like the desire to push themselves and i think by pushing yourself athletically it allows you to push other areas because you compare oh that wasn't as hard as i thought it was going to be something else won't be as as difficult and it lets you be a bit more open to taking risk and open to believing and trusting yourself that you can do it like I imagine once you run a marathon, you're going to realize, oh, that wasn't as bad. It wasn't great. It was kind of sucked. But now I understand that I can do that and have accomplished that challenge. And then you decide if you want to do more or if you're done forever, <laughs> which a lot of people do one and they're like, oh, okay, I got to do more. Yeah, it, it's funny, man. It's like, so much of life, it seems like, is just you proving to yourself what you think you're capable of if you have the courage to actually stand up and do it, right? Like, it. most people could run a marathon, but it's like, do you have the consistency of the training? Are you, are you actually going to be that person? Um, and then, you know, I, I think, like, it's an easy thing to do to build that mental toughness or build that consistency to do it because I've done it in so many different areas of my life. But then I look at the Garmin and I see I'm running 20 miles a week minimum and that's more than 99% of people. Like how in the world is that possible? How in the world am I in the top 1% of doing this for just doing it for three months? Dude, Why it aren't so people more mentally tough? It is so easy to go to the gym because there, uh, it's like, there's so many easy things you can do. Society has, I believe, became a bit easier than 100 years ago. And 
hundred years ago, if you had to walk five miles to your closest town to get groceries, you can now click an app and get anything you want delivered in 20 minutes. And going to the gym, you can walk in a gym and lift weights, but going on a run, you have to push your heart and lungs and entire full body to actually work. And if you haven't been running, then you're going to be worried that you're going to be sore or hurt or get hurt. And then it's these limiting beliefs that you can't do it or you don't want to do it because you're afraid of the outcome. Are there any things that you repeat to yourself often throughout the day to uh, as just a, a way to motivate yourself or a way to continue going during a run or during work? Is there anything you repeat to yourself often? The thing that I recently a lot is like, I don't want to do this, but I have to do it. Hmm. that's simple. It's like yesterday I didn't want to run eight miles, but I felt so good after I ran. I didn't want to run six miles on Saturday. And I still was like, okay, now I'm in this, like, I want, I don't want to be at the New York city marathon running for four and a half hours or four hours. Like the more you train up to a marathon, the faster you finish and the less time you have to spend going through the struggle of it in terms of like, I respect people that go to marathons and spend six hours to finish. That sounds awful. Like I could not imagine spending six hours to run 26 miles. And those people are going through an entire different mental game just from like where they are in training. And the training just makes race day easier, hopefully. There's also something to, to you posting it on Twitter. I feel like where I don't want to do this, but I have to is like you put your schedule out there and then you also have yeah. Shrava, I'm pretty sure, as well. So it's like someone could look at that and be like, all right, well, he said he was going to do this, but he didn't. Does that play a part in it, posting it on Twitter, your training plan? Yeah, I mostly just posted the training plan so people could see what the plan was. And then after New York Marathon, there's the plan I followed. And then um, there's the the finish of it. And I mean, I don't have a time baseline yet because I'm going to give it a few more weeks until I do a fitness test and get an idea. The fastest I ran was a 304, but I was 10 pounds lighter and I was actually in better shape. I would say cardio wise, I was running, I ran barefoot every single day at 5.30 a.m. when I lived in LA working at the NFL. I'd wake up, I'd run from Maria Del Rey to the Santa Monica pier and back barefoot. And there was something about that type of training that got me so strong by doing eight to 10 miles every morning barefoot on the sand that I have never come close to now Hmm. in running more. And, but I was also in marathon shape back then. I really, I do enjoy the gym. I do enjoy lifting. I do pull-ups all day um, on that where is that? That would pull up bar back there. Casey came and drilled it in pegboard, but it's like the, the balance of wanting to run fast, but also enjoying lifting. And it's like, they're two opposites. Like a fast runner for the most part, doesn't want to have any extra weight. You want to be as lean as you can. Then I look at like Nick bear and I'm like, dude, this guy ran a sub three hour marathon and he's a monster. So it's like, <laughs> that's like probably a limiting belief. To, to believe that you, you can't run speed with uh, mass behind you. What other limiting beliefs do you think you hold? 
Hmm. I often wonder if, uh, and like, I'll question everything. Like, is this even good enough? Hmm. Is what I'm doing good enough? Does it, who does it need to be? Is it like, it should be good enough for me. Why would I worry about like, why am I so particular and with my, when I'm making things like perfectionist and then worrying like, okay, this is not going to do well or with a client, like they're not going to like this and then they're not going to want to work with me anymore. And like creating these almost like creating these own self doubts, even though I've done something before that's worked and like constantly maybe doubting if the outcome is good enough. And How do you it's, get around it's that? Tough. Uh, I think it can like it's kind of like imposter syndrome. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I think you just like keep keep pushing. Um, yeah, I I read a lot of I read about artists that their work never even saw the public. And it's insane to think of like, okay, this person created art their whole life and no one even saw it. And they never knew, they never even had the opportunity for the world to see it. So we live in this age now where you can just put something on the internet and people might see it but then you need to be like fully willing and open to criticism feedback and deciding, okay, are you going to keep doing this? Because today's day and age requires, um, what is that? Self, like self marketing, self publication. You, you see it. It's like, are you sometimes like when you're starting and when you're creating, you're talking to a void mm. and you're awaiting feedback to see. And as an artist and creator, you think like, Am I not good enough? Is this not good enough? Am I, why does no one like what I'm doing? And then as you progress, you're still constantly questioning and asking like, am I doing something wrong? Why did this not do well? But I remember I made at the NFL a video I loved and spent five days on it. And then it was delivered to the player and the player never posted it, never saw the light of day. Or another video I made and spent two weeks on and then management decided to not use it. So it's like, okay, you spend all this time, created something and it's just buried. And then in your mind, that's going to mess with your mind. It's going to have you question things. And then... That's where you decide to push forward or... Yeah, that's a low, but that can be a mental low. And you can be riding yeah, on I those mean, highs and then hit a mental low. Where my mind goes is you you have to have validation in yourself for the process. But it's like, is that actually something that can be done in a world where bills are required and stuff like that? And, and that's where it's nice to have the artistic pursuit be something on the side that you're not required to make money on. And I feel like you're kind of like, you're blending the world. But the truth is your artistic pursuit is the big wave surfing and documenting that. And so yeah. you also get it in your day-to-day income generating activities, but 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like the balance of uh, do you want to make money or do you want to be an artist? Can you do both? Is what you enjoy doing, can you monetize it? And Or do you want something, are you shooting for bigger? Because honestly, like, there's days where I'm like, I want to build the biggest company I can. If I need to raise money, I will, but I don't want to. If I have that idea that I think could be a massive company, I'll spend every single dollar to my name. And like, I'm kind of doing that right now, actually. Um, the way that the way that the company's going is I'm working with people come to me, they want a video and then they're brokering that video for more money to someone else there. I produce it directly. We create it, animate it, storyboard, whatever, like write the story and then take that video and sell it to someone that is either a sponsor or there's a middleman. And now it's a way bigger project than if it was just me potentially making it for a client and it could be one video that is the same price as 10 videos but i also like that i can run a business from a computer or anywhere in the world and it can be you can create things without a camera so there's the side of like i can know i can make and create things with a camera but then there's the other side of okay, we can create something in After Effects that doesn't require a camera that can be built from nothing. And there are tons of markets that don't need to have video footage for what they need created. And that's what makes it really interesting to me is where are these crossovers of bringing these like really insane animations to the biggest players? And I... I constantly like, like I like the idea of chasing only a few big videos a month versus hundreds of videos a month. Well, that's the difference between working with creators versus working with businesses, right? Is that you're now getting to do less work in some sense, but bigger deals. Yeah. What's been that journey like? Uh, we have one video, the coolest video that made has like 120 hours of animation to it. Wrote the script. It's about Vegas. I worked with my old boss at the NFL to help write it. The coolest. I think it's like my, one of my favorite videos. Is it in out? In this style. No, it's being shopped around right now. So I'm working in, um, it's with Front Office Sports, which is, I believe out of Austin, pretty big sports publication. And that's like the most exciting project in company working with right now, the way we have ideas, but they have a cool formula. So it'd be like, make the videos and then they will sell the video to a sponsor. And then they put ad spin behind it. It's organic and paid pretty much about the world of sports, which is where like going towards that sports direction uh, can open doors. But also just from like this first video that, has been made and the other ideas discussed. I I'm been this is the most exciting, most exciting project in person and company to be working with right now. And the it's owner full, is really cool. It's a full circle moment for you. Yeah. The owner has been following me on Twitter since the NFL days and then reached out and then we just started talking. So that's been one of those like, okay, since 2019 to now and now like did a video, it's already made 
being shopped around. Uh, yeah, that, and we have endless ideas. So it's like, I text him all day. I have an idea. I just send a bunch of text messages and blow up his phone. So the ideas are like, if I have it, make sure that someone has that idea on their phone or email. That's the biggest thing is like, I think a lot of people hold back their ideas and that's all it takes. It's like when I'm texting Casey ideas or, uh, coming up with something for a client, when you have that idea, you're going to forget it. Just send a message, write it down or email it. Cause we are constantly coming up with ideas all day that we're missing out on great ideas. And if you can get it validated as something that will work and then execute on it now, it's like, okay, you didn't waste that idea. You get to bring it to life. You feel very good bringing an idea to life. Seeing an idea go from an idea written out to a video created or anything that you can imagine is a really good feeling. So it's the visualization in real life. I would argue that even just from the mind to something that you can see on a screen, like through written form is, or just on a piece of paper changes your idea of what it is and makes it more real. And yeah, take us through like your idea generating activities or things you do to generate better ideas. Dude, walking around New York city. It's insane. Just walking around and observing and and flying. I I just flew back from San Diego and I just filled a notebook. It was just nonstop writing ideas and stories, uh, mostly for front office sports ideas and then laying out like the next, like trying to lay out a six month plan of ideas, industries I want to work with, people I want to reach out to. But the big thing I find is, so i actively really try not to use my phone before I sleep reading a book and then writing ideas while you read. So I noticed that when I'm reading, I get, I'll start crafting ideas directly from mostly like business books, marketing books, uh, actual people who have built something, extracting their thoughts and ideas and then pivoting. Okay. Like this is a good thing that I could apply here. This idea is good but how can I make it better? And then you just write down, take as many notes and then actually just review the notes and the next day, okay, is there something that makes sense to pursue? And then it's just action. Like the big thing is you can have endless ideas, but there's millions of great ideas. And the only way that ideas come to life is by acting upon them. And that's where like you get into the is this good or is this bad? Like, is this worth pursuing? And that's what I like about being in this office and also having people to talk to. And I mean, we have probably the coolest group chat ever where you're send something and get feedback. Anyone will send something to get feedback constantly talking about, is this good? Is this bad? Should we try this? Should we? And it's everyone's kind of just fueling and feeding off each other. And it's bouncing that that's, that's something I think like, every entrepreneur should really have like a really close group chat of friends that they can talk freely in about ideas, about business struggles, about help me with this piece of content, like open being open to feedback that could hurt, but is not meant to hurt. That's the best Mm -hmm. type of feedback. And I think sometimes like we think we're being attacked when we're getting feedback, but we're really just getting someone hopefully that we respect's point of view and we can adapt that 
point of view if it makes sense and build off of that idea. And yeah, I, I have to give you credit because you gave me one of the longest pieces of constructive criticism slash feedback that still rings in my head as like, this was all so true. This was broken down so well. And I was so grateful for you for sending the message or just like typing. I felt like a dick after I sent that. And I was like, damn, was that too hard? Oh yeah. I read back and I was like, I think I texted Zach or Dylan and I was like, did I just like go way too hard on Danny? But I think it came from like a sense of like, I want to see the podcast be as big as possible. I want to see the YouTube numbers be as big as possible. I want to see the short form. I was like thinking from such a data analytical breaking down, like if this wasn't working for me, where would I go first? And then just wrote it and sent it. And those are sometimes the things that get you in trouble or like make you uh, hurt someone's feelings. And like, that's where like I try to, uh, say it nicely, but sometimes it comes off as like, like a dick. And I wasn't trying to be a dick, but I was, I'm glad that you bring that up. Cause I yeah, think dude, that's no, like one of those, like if people ask for feedback or I like ask for help and you don't tell them truthful, honest feedback or give them help, then you're doing them a disservice for not actually trying to help. If you're 1, holding 000%. back, if you yeah, have I mean, ideas that might hurt feelings, but then help that person progress further, like some of the best things ever came from Casey where like, if someone else said that I would probably be like, why am I listening to you? Tell me this. But the way he says it is in a way that no one else is going to say it. And it's meant to be constructive criticism that will hurt for a second. It will sting. And then it'll benefit you if you apply it, if you somehow use it to your advantage. Yeah. I mean, what I appreciated so much about that specific piece of feedback is that you were able to highlight the things that I was doing well, as well as the things that I was doing poorly and separate them out of my mind in a way that I hadn't thought of before. So thank you for doing that. It was really impactful. I'm so grateful that you're a friend, that you were willing to send that message and that just like you for being you, man, like thank you for being you because you've played an incredible role in my life. And I'm so grateful that you were episode four of this podcast, episode 400, hopefully episode Dude, you 4, played 000. an incredible, incredible role in my life too. And I think it's what you, I, you probably realize this now. And if you haven't, it's that you have an unbelievable ability to connect humans in this world. And whether it's through building a network, communication, research, interviewing, your ability to walk into a room with someone that you may have never met, but you have studied off the internet, sit down, connect with them on a level that makes them sit back after and take a deep breath. Like, whoa, that was a crazy conversation, which like I saw that with Andy Frisella in person. And we know that because of the way he reacted and well, the video footage, but and we, you, you constantly are hearing this from people that you work with. And from outside looking in as a friend, I know how many hours. I actually don't know. I know how many hours you put it in, but I know you're putting in way more than what anyone sees. And it's the highs and lows. Some days you're on top of the world and other days you're like, is this the right thing? But from the outside looking in and from just seeing your progression since number four, I truly believe you are on the path that you're meant to be on and looking at the numbers and the way you're open to feedback, you are just, it's going higher and higher. 
the chart is going higher and higher. The Danny Miranda stock is going higher and higher. And it's because you are focused and you're not giving up and you're constantly pushing and you're willing to ask people and you're willing to approach and say, Hey, do you want to be on the podcast? You, you don't have, you're not afraid. You're not afraid to tweet. You're not afraid to ask someone for a reference or referral. You're, that's the biggest thing that you see in anyone who is successful with anything is that they're never afraid. They kept pushing. And even when you want to quit, you're never afraid to wake up the next day and keep pushing. And it's incredible to watch. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. I like to end these podcasts with challenges, as you may know from Frisella and many others. Since episode four, we've added that little touch. Do you have a challenge for people listening to live the best possible version of their life and hopefully an action step that they can take to become better? Actually, I think this is a good one since we're training for it. I think every human that can run a marathon should run a marathon at least once just to understand it and what it does for you as a person, just knowing you've completed it. But it's not about the act of after the fact completing it. It's about what happens during. And everyone has those moments during the first marathon where it is the worst. You're like, why did I do this? It is the worst thing, but it leaves you with something that will benefit you later or throughout the rest of, of life. And that's common denominator from everyone I know who's done one is that it'll impact your life in other avenues that you would never expect. I would without a doubt say that training for the marathon has made me a better podcaster. So that's one thing. We'll see what happens when the marathons actually ran. Thank you for being an inspiration. Thank you for coming on this podcast and uh, let's send people to Hunter underscore Weiss or Weiss underscore marketing on Instagram. Is that correct? Oh, it's just Weiss, just Weiss marketing. W-E-I-F-S. Weiss marketing on Instagram. Yeah. And Hunter underscore Danny. Weiss on Twitter. Appreciate you. Appreciate you too, bro. This was great.